Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Content Clearinghouse. I'm Josh Evans. And I'm Brett Chisholm. And on today's episode, it's everything space-related. We talk about Brett's new desire to become a space-themed drag queen named Miss Transneptunian Object. Transneptunian objects also happen to be one of the most fascinating things about our solar system. Then Brett ditches the drag and dons his NASA socks to talk nerdy babes and religious hunks. It's science versus religion on this episode. Get ready for contact. Movies, shows, and video games. Podcast books and their acclaims. Let their favorite content become yours. It's the Content Clearinghouse. Content Clearinghouse. And it starts right now. Brett, give me a sound check. <laughs> Perfect. Brett, how are you? I'm doing awesome. I'm just chilling in North Carolina. Oh, traveling again. I see you're sitting in a hotel room. This is not What's up with that. This is not a fake Zoom background. I'm in 737 no. school. Oh, <laughs> nice. That's a big step, man. I got me a flying Congrats. job. Thanks, buddy. That's awesome yeah, i'm sure you'll and, hear uh, uh, all about it but i still make time for the show even though i'm studying a ton I'll... that's perfect are you are you using your travel mic <laughs> i am so the sound quality might be a little bit different but uh i you know i gotta i gotta be compact i can't tell take my briefcase of microphone electronics with me on uh, layovers <laughs> pelican case uh i think everyone that loves you so so much already will forgive you if your sound is a little bit different i that's good all right then <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so anything else new besides that is it just uh are you just immersing yourself in pilot training uh pretty much just that and uh brie and i are trying to buy some land right now but it's uh it's kind of been a back and forth and it's kind of a pain in the ass oh wow yeah, yeah that's uh yeah you'll be um you'll be like a real certified human once you get your put your name on the map well we'll have at least a, a plot of dirt to park the airstream on so that's something <laughs> perfect <laughs> awesome well that's great man sounds like you are doing awesome you look super happy so i'm really stoked for you buddy thanks buddy this is a 100% organic, genuine smile. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, it's per well. You're not allowed to really uh, do anything to make that smile any happier. So you just stay on the straight and narrow, buddy. Well, can we at least talk about content? Because that makes me pretty happy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've got something good for you. And from what I hear, it might coincide with what you're talking about today. That's pretty crazy. Uh, so I'm sure you've heard about the... Uh, the UFO clause in the new COVID relief bill, right? I absolutely have. Was it Ted Cruz <laughs> that put have. it in? It's, it, yeah, I'm not sure who put it in, but it's it seems like an absolute insanity that it's tacked onto the COVID relief bill. But, you know, the U.S. government has roughly 180 days to turn over all information regarding to UFOs. And, I mean, really, for no reason that anyone can ascertain that report must contain detailed analysis of UFO data and intelligence collected by the Office of Naval Intelligence, the Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon Task Force, and the FBI. And so they, that is, uh, that's great for us. It is. Uh, it doesn't mean it's really enforceable, but it might be a good excuse if they already wanted to disclose something to put it out there. But it's, it's, exactly. uh, it's like a ticking down... Uh, um, 
it's like a ticking clock, right? Like there's a time limit on when this has to be released. Yeah, 180 days. 180 days. But you know, That's right. this got me kind of thinking about our own solar system. And, you know, I, I'm sure likewise you've heard of the legend of Planet X or Nibiru or Planet Nine or whatever the myriad of names is for it. You know, it's the proposed planet with the 3,600-year orbit that was predicted to slam into the Earth during 2012. Uh, I, I, I guess I've heard of this. I remember 2012. I didn't realize oh, yeah. that there was a planet associated with it. Well, it's just a, you know, it's just a, a legend that people were, you know, proposing that, you know, perhaps it was like the seed point for a biologically engineered panspermia or something for Earth. But regardless of, you know, whether there are aliens or where are these these mythological planets that have so far been proven to not exist, space is still completely fascinating and holds so many mysteries even in our, in our own galactic neighborhood so like, how many planets would you say exist in our solar system <laughs> my very excellent mother just served us nine pizzas but pizza for pluto just got kicked off the map uh so let's see so there's eight brett's planets. counting on his fingers and my toes yeah so you can say <laughs> oh wow we have an accident that i wasn't aware of <laughs> Uh, yeah, so you could say eight or maybe nine, depending on how you classify them. And if you buy into uh, the bureaucratic stripping of Pluto's planetary status in 2006. How dare they? It's wait, what do I they, know. What do they call it? It's a uh, uh, they say it's a dwarf, dwarf planet. planet. Yep, that's it. And to be a planet, an astrological body has to meet three criteria. One, it has to orbit around the sun or a star. Two, it has to have sufficient mass to assume hydrostatic equilibrium, which is a nearly round shape. And three, it has to have cleared the neighborhood around its orbit. And that was the problem with Pluto, is that it had not cleared its neighborhood. It still shares its orbit with numerous other objects in the Kuiper Belt region. There are asteroids and Plutinos, as they're called. And those are, you know, those are objects that make up most of the mass in the inner Kuiper Belt. And I was under the impression that it had a pretty good idea about what our solar system looked like. You know, most of the planets and the moons, and I knew, I thought I knew about our galactic neighborhood, but then like recently I learned about something called trans-Neptunian objects. Have you heard of this? Uh, this this sounds like something from the left uh, that might be tacked <laughs> onto the LGBTQI. Yeah, these are, uh, these are uh, very politically correct <laughs> spheroids. But no, it's a... So our solar system, the heliosphere of our solar system is the point where our star's solar wind no longer significantly inf influences celestial bodies. And the heliosphere of our sun sits at about 121 astronomical units, which is like 18 billion kilometers. So within our heliosphere and at a distance of more than 30 astrological units, astronomical units, Sorry, I'm not an astrologer, but basically beyond Neptune, the catalog of minor planets contains 678 numbered planets and more than 2,000 unnumbered planets or TNOs, trans-Neptunian objects. And that count is from October of 2020. So there are, you know, almost 3,000 known objects that qualify as dwarf planets or Plutinos or something that's not just an asteroid floating out right, out there right now. Well, I know that if I ever become 
a burlesque dancer or dress and drag, I want the name Miss Trans Neptunian. <laughs> what was it? <laughs> Miss Trans Neptunian object. I want to be Miss Trans Neptunian object. Yeah, I he stick comes. a dollar bill in your belt. <laughs> he's in your, he's got uh, quite the astronomical stream. body. <laughs> yes, he does. Check out the AUs on him. So for a long time, no one was really searching for these TNOs. It was generally believed that Pluto was the only major object beyond Neptune. And it was in 1992, the discovery of a second TNO. It's the catchy name of 15760Albion. That was discovered. And then they started doing systematic searches for further objects. They found, I mean, hundreds of TNOs were found with diameters in the range of 50 to 2,500 kilometers. And just recently, Eris was discovered. It's the most massive of the TNOs. It was discovered in 2005. And that started a long-running dispute within the scientific community over the classification of large TNOs and whether things like Pluto could be considered planets. So Eris is the ninth most most massive known object directly orbiting the sun, so bigger than Pluto, and the 16th most massive overall in the solar system, including moons. So also this is the largest object that has not been visited by spacecraft. But this is like an entire other almost planet that's floating out there. You know, it's it's part of the scattered disk, this, this area of rocks that overlaps with the Kuiper belt. And it's uh, it's thought to be the origin of like most of the comets in our solar system is that area where it comes from. So why are these objects not considered fully fledged planets? Are they just too small? Are they too like what? What's the classification? Why did why did well, Pluto ride the cusp and all of these are just objects? Uh, so Pluto, the problem and the same thing with Eris is that it just hasn't cleared its neighborhood. It's mm-hmm. like regularly crashing into things i would assume you know it's basically like its gravity well is not strong enough to pull all the other asteroids out of its orbital path Hmm. so this uh you know pluto and eris were eventually classified as dwarf planets by the uh international astronomical union and then um in december 2018 the discovery of again super catchy 2018 vg18 nickname uh far out was announced and far out is the most distant solar object so far observed in our heliosphere. It's 120 astronomical units away from the sun. It likely takes a, a thousand years to complete one orbit. Oh my gosh. So all of this is to say that like our solar system is in some ways like a complete mystery to us. And even though we all kind of grew up thinking that we had a solid picture of what it looks like, you know, it's we thought we knew how it worked. We thought we knew how many planets there were. But that common model is clearly incomplete. If there's an entire dwarf planet like Eris, which is larger than Pluto, it's out there and it's existed all this time. We only discovered it recently. I'm like, who knows what else might be out there? Like, we can't even accurately map our own neighborhood. It's not inconceivable that the aliens that we all wish for, like, truly are real. And they might very easily already be here. So hopefully, we will all find out this summer or... Maybe we won't if the U.S. government decides it wants to be a PR maven about this whole thing. (laughs) You know what I have to say, Josh? Yay, COVID. Yay. Thank you. Thank you, COVID. You did it. For bringing the the aliens to light. Hopefully, yeah. (laughs) Hopefully this will, uh, right on the heels of this uh, 
UFO drop. We'll also get the uh, big Bigfoot reveal that you and I are so hopeful for. Mm, what does Bigfoot Bigfoot look like <laughs> under all that hair? <laughs> Ooh, you know CIA has got some shaved pictures of him. <laughs> so dirty, spying I on know. him in the forest. Exactly. So yeah, what's on your content circuit, buddy? Uh, I watched a film on the way to. It was more of a movie. I don't know what the difference between a movie and a film is. Just like I don't know the difference between a dwarf planet and a planet. But you should uh, know this. You're a contentologist. It's just the the movie is the trashy thing, and the film is like the pretentious thing that they tr- give all the Oscars to. Well, then I'm not sure what this one is. Um, I don't know if you've seen this. This is uh, Julia Louis Dreyfus and um, Will Ferrell. It's called Downhill, and I thought it was a, going to be a comedy movie. I had seen a trailer for it, but they're on like a are they in Switzerland? I don't know. They're Maybe in, uh, I don't know, they're somewhere in, on a fancy ski vacation in Europe and uh, things just start to go wrong when they think an avalanche is going to take them out as they're having lunch at a ski chalet. And Will Ferrell playing the dad character of this family grabs his phone and runs away in his ski boots and kind of a <laughs> marriage falling apart ensues. And it was not funny. And you just, no. you just think with the cast, you know, it's going to be... Uh, it's going to be funny, but it was just very cringy and strange. So I don't recommend it, but I watched it. So that's, up, oh, <laughs> that's been on my Is it circuit. not good? Uh, I just, I, I didn't like it. I didn't like it. I was, I was uncomfortable the entire time. I was, I was uncomfortable watching that more than like the descent. <laughs> Oof. It was, yeah, that, actually I've seen a few Will Ferrell movies where he's doing like a dramatic role and they're all like, pretty rough you know so he's like everything must go was that one with will ferrell mm, yeah also like stranger than fiction i think was one where he was like a he was like a a character from a novel come to life and he worked as a uh like a irs auditor or something and it was just like i mean he's like really good in dramatic roles but it was also just like wasn't really my cup of tea you know you know my favorite um comedian in a role that is against type but really fucking good was robin williams in one hour photo oh man that performance haunted me (laughs) so good you know actually i haven't seen that whole movie so i can't really speak to his performance but there is another robin williams dramatic role uh father of the year have you seen this where he's a he's the He's the father of a son that dies while chokesturbating himself. Oh, and no. he, uh, and it's like his son becomes like this. He becomes, I guess, like a, like an icon amongst people for like suicide. And then Robin Williams is trying to cover up what actually happened is that he didn't intentionally kill himself. So it's like Robin Williams is getting all this like, accolades and like all these help this help from the community because he's like you know they think that his son killed himself because he was depressed and robin williams had been dealing with it but then it like comes out that he's he's like this really embarrassing death and it's like and again another really disturbing and really uncomfortable huh. film but an awesome dramatic performance by robin williams well uh the other one that just came to me about robin williams was insomnia with al pacino 
So maybe Robin Williams was more of a dramatic actor than a comedian <laughs> now that I yeah. think about it. But well, maybe that's the style they were going for with downhill. But, uh, you know, because it, it did seem to try to have some humorous elements. But man, I just I couldn't stand it. But Interesting. I'm gonna, so don't watch downhill. Don't watch downhill. I'm putting father of the year on my list right now. Yeah, it's a good one. <laughs> uh, how about you? What's uh, on your uh, yeah? What's on the circuit? Sorry, I was just writing that down. So I didn't I'm forget. still working through the rest of the Lost Fleet series. I'm like, I think I'm on book 15 now. I've been like burning through them. Nice. And it helps that I've read it before, but it's just like, it, it's so all consuming. And I knew once I started with the first book, Dauntless, I wasn't going to be able to stop. But I've already got my content circuit planned out. Like I, I want to always have a book on hand. And my good friend Brett bought me uh, the Yuval Noah Harari book, 21st Lessons <laughs> for the 21st Century for Christmas. So that's going to be the next thing that I'm going to be digging into. And I'm pretty excited to do something besides like some sci-fi military fiction, which is what I've been Im- immersed in lately. You know, I was just talking about a section in that book that talks about Pixar and how it depicts uh, humans with no souls. And I was at a big pilot dinner and a couple eyes glazed over. So pretty soon <laughs> you will also have the power to make people's eyes glaze over. <laughs> what a sales pitch. Wow, that's that's a hard sell coming from a contentologist, a person who's literally dedicated his entire life to selling people on content. <laughs> so nice work, Brett. You know, I just have to meet the Yuval Noah Harari quota for life and the show. So exactly. All, I mean, while we're at it, we, we might as well throw in uh, Kelly Coutrone PR Maven simply because if we want to force her to become the next Yuval Noah Harari, <laughs> we got to start now, buddy. Kelly Coutrone PR Maven. Perfect. That's two mentions in this show so far. <laughs> All right, well, let's take a quick break and then we will come back and get into some content. content? Hello, listeners. Don't hit the skip forward button just yet. This is not an ad. This is a call for you guys and gals to get involved with the show. So we want to hear from you about your favorite pieces of content and why they're the best. Or you can even tell us if you've checked out a piece of content because we recommended it and uh, if you loved it or not. So contact us at contentclearinghouse at gmail.com or on Instagram or Facebook at The Content Clearinghouse. And we will read your letters on the air right here. Thanks so much for listening. We love you guys. Okay, back to the show. Ooh, content. Clear it out. Welcome back to The Content Clearinghouse, Brett. I hear you might be doing something that involves space. Well, this is crazy. I, I feel like the listeners are not going to believe us, but I'm just going to, for the record, uh, state that we did not plan this. Um, this is a piece of content that I've had on my list since the beginning, before we started the show. This is one of my favorites. And uh, for reasons I will explain later, I decided to, to talk about it tonight, but it's kind of been on the back burner. Uh, and what tipped Josh off is I'm wearing my uh, favorite NASA shirt. My wife thinks I need to retire this shirt. It's got holes. <laughs> it's got armpit stains. I'm not going to do it. It's got these sweet Apollo 11 mission patches on the side. I mean, this. Wow. I love this shirt. Um, I'm also wearing that my is NASA, pretty awesome. NASA socks. So uh, Brett had to stop before we uh, began a recording and run over and put his NASA socks on. That was the first tip off. I knew something, something was up. Yeah. Um, so let me just ask you, Josh, 
What do you get when you multiply hydrogen times pi? <laughs> um, I'm not super good at uh, basic math, so I doubt I can do this problem. <laughs> well, so you have to tell me. Someone named Fentro from Danbury, Connecticut, asked this very question. Uh, he claims incorrectly that you should get 3.16672 because of the atomic weight of hydrogen. And of course, See, that's what I was going to say, but oh, yeah. <laughs> clearly it's wrong. Well, good thing you didn't guess that. And good thing Fentro sought out the expertise of Dr. Seti. Uh, now, Dr. Seti from setileague.org says frequencies of radio waves are related to the arbitrary way we measure time. And the real answer to Fentro's question has to do with how you define hydrogen. So all that aside, what is the answer? If you're in the Robert... To no, you're close. No. You're, getting, you're getting closer, though. Actually, no, you're, All right. you're getting further away. No. <laughs> so if you're in the Robert Zemeckis movie I'm about to talk about, the answer is... Oh, here we go. 4.4623 gigahertz, hydrogen times pi. Josh, the movie I'm about to talk about has heated romance, sexual tension, Ooh. personal tragedy, and workplace strife. It has babes. It has hunks, Nazis. Ooh eccentric billionaires, and even a blind person with great hair and even greater hearing. But the real themes at the heart of this 1990s ultimate favorite of mine come down to exploring faith in God, trust in the pure reasoning of science, and finding a truth and reconciliation of them both. And it also has a fantastic anti-science cult leader played by Jake Busey. <laughs> <laughs> okay is this is this ringing a bell no what are we what are you talking about you know one of the i think one of the my favorite things about this show is coming up with all the different <laughs> the intro all the different things from a piece of content that seem to like not have anything to do with each other to see if you can guess the movie i just, for some reason it's funny to put like all of the little weird plot pieces into like one stupid paragraph <laughs> Yeah, it's awesome too. And it's like, try to like, maybe intentionally obfuscate it just a right, little bit. But exactly. when you do that, you also, you're, you also start to recognize like all these underlying themes that are not apparent on the surface. Like I've noticed that a lot with this show too. Whenever I start digging into something and trying to find, I don't know, a new take or something that's going to spawn some sort of interesting conversation. I find all kind of just elements and subjects and Totally. Themes that never occurred to me the first time I watched or read something that I've loved for years. Absolutely. And just like you said, that like intentional, obs uh, how do you say that word? <laughs> obs ob Astronomical. Ob astronomical. That's it. It's an astronomical. <laughs> Obsification. Unit. That's it. That's one of those hard words, buddy. Um, what brings this movie all together? What brings all these elements together? Extraterrestrial contact. Because I'm talking about the movie Contact. Ooh, all right. <laughs> have you seen this? Only once. Oh, my gosh. So you are going to have to <laughs> tell me all the deep themes because I only have like cursory knowledge of this. You know, considering both of us are professional contentologists, it's very interesting also to see what content uh, we do not overlap on. I know. It's like we have I'm trying to consume it all, but <laughs> yeah, holy shit, people. Yeah, there's like at least a million things. <laughs> but definitely. Um, well, you're going to have to go ahead and buckle up your uh, 
into your big old silver ball. Don't forget to grab your ham radio because we're headed into another dimension. It's the content dimension of the 90s. Going low tech. <laughs> so Contact is a 1997 science fiction drama directed by Robert Zemeckis. It is a film adaptation of Carl Sagan's 1985 novel Contact. Uh, I have not read this novel. I have heard it is very good. Uh, and of course, wait for it. It's supposedly better than the movie. So they say <laughs> so about they, almost everything. So they say about every book that Although, can turn into a movie. If I can make an argument about this right now, I'm very I curious. would argue that Jurassic Park, the book, is not better than the movie. Really? I read it recently. Yeah, I read it recently as an adult. And if you think the kids are annoying in the movie, dude, they're <laughs> like a thousand times worse in the book. You could have just, if he had left them out of the book, it would have been such a better work. But with the kids in there, there was big chunks of the book that I was just skipping over. And I read that book like 20 times when I was a kid. I must have had like awful taste. I, I remember you talking about Jurassic Park, the book, and uh, and you really liked it. When I was 13, I loved it. Is I it not good? It's might a very have, popular uh, book. Is it not good? It is. I wouldn't say that it's awful, but I would say compared to the movie, it is the inferior work of art. Mm. Well, one of them has Jeff Goldblum, so... What are you going to do? (laughs) Can't beat that. So Carl Sagan, uh, he's a renowned astronomer, planetary scientist, cosmologist, astrophysicist, astrobiologist, author, poet, and science communicator. Uh, He wrote the story outline for Contact with his wife, Andrean, an Emmy and Peabody award-winning writer, producer, director, um, and she specialized in the communication of science. Now, these two legends among other things, like creating the 1980 PBS documentary series Cosmos, were even in charge of deciding what goes on the golden disks affixed to both the Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 spacecraft. That's legendary. It absolutely is. And uh, since you brought up AUs earlier, and I swear to the listeners, we ha- we did not plan you talk this about astronomical units? <laughs> you got it. So... So the Voyager 1 is the farthest man-made object from Earth. Uh, Left the solar system in 2012, uh, right around the time of the first fake apocalypse. (laughs) Was not what was advertised. I guess uh, 2001 was the first. So 2012 was technically the second. 2020 was the third. Who knows what's next? Anyway. And we've not once been hit by (laughs) Nibiru. (laughs) Nibiru, please end our suffering. (laughs) Um, so right now, Voyager 1, it's about 125 astrometallurgical units away, AUs. That's how I hear it's pronounced. <laughs> and um, I think you mentioned it on this episode. It's 93 million miles. It is the distance from the Earth to the sun is one AU. In case that makes sense. somebody wanted to, you know, figure out how tall they were in AUs. <laughs> That's a very, very small percentage. Yeah, I actually didn't do that math. I mentioned earlier that I'm really horrible at basic math. And I did not feel like opening the calculator on my iPhone. Hydrogen times so I just, uh, It's so yeah, simple. <laughs> I just uh, left it at 121 AUs as 18 quadrillion miles or whatever. Um, so Voyager 1 is the first spacecraft to reach interstellar space. 
which now I guess it's like, what is the definition of that? We get into the Pluto debate. Um, outside the heliosphere. It, it is outside the heliosphere. That is true. Um, so I guess that would be considered interstellar space when it stops receiving photon bombardment. Yeah, so interstellar space is defined as the space between solar systems. Okay. So that would be anything between overlapping heliospheres or adjacent heliospheres. Okay. You know, uh, this has taken another little sidetrack here, but you mentioned the Kuiper Belt. Uh, you know, our dog is named Neowise Mandalorian Chisholm, or Mando for short. The litter from the dog breeder, the dad's name was Astro, and wanted to have all oh, of cool. the yeah, all of the 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 litter, the dogs born. They were hoping for astronomical names for all the dogs. So, like Cassiopeia was one, I think, uh, one of the names. So we actually had Kuiper on our list. Uh, for Kuiper, That's a pretty Bell. cool name. It is definitely a cool name. It's I, I'm pretty sure. Wait, was this like a was, like threw us off though? Was this like a requirement by the breeder? They were trying to encourage you to name the dog a certain thing. They yeah to go along I mean, with the expansive contract that already comes with this dog. <laughs> it was it was up to us, but I mean, when they said like, yeah, we kind of want an astronomical name for the dog. We're like, uh, yeah, we're in. Like that's awesome, but we still liked. Uh, you know, Mando, just the sound of it. So we just made Mando his nickname and Neo Wise Mandalorian Chisholm his full legal name. <laughs> well, you could argue that Mandalorian is uh, that's true. Astro astronomical name because the Mandalorian don't live here on Earth, folks. <laughs> He's also a fictional character from a space drama, not a science fiction. Yes, but if what they say about the expansiveness of the universe and uh, the nature of infinite possibility <laughs> is true, then it's actually 100% likely there's a real Mandalorian out there somewhere. In another universe, Josh, I am your mother. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, uh, Mrs. Trans-Neptunian Object. You got it. <laughs> um, so Voyager 1, um, the power supply is running out. So it is still transmitting data right now. It's in interstellar space, 125 AUs away. They think the power source might fail by 2025, uh, but still pretty cool. I am going to link to something in the show notes about this. Obviously, everyone has heard of Carl Sagan. He really the only ologist he is not is a contentologist. This Unfortunately, <laughs> that did not exist during his lifetime. Uh, other, he obviously, I mean, he... We had not defined it yet. Exactly. If he was alive now, you know that he would be going to Harvard like we did to get his contentology you, degree. I think he might even be accepted to the even more prestigious University of Contentology or U of C. Yeah, so uh, as soon as we get that up and running, everyone just uh, go ahead and sign up. It's about a thousand dollars a week, and <laughs> you, can all, a you, week. Can, you guys can also all get certified. What university charges by the week? <laughs> I guess you kind of like how like a like a really shady motel does business. <laughs> It's kind of how our university works. It's $20 an hour. Exactly, yeah. Um, so, like I was saying, Carl Sagan, obviously a legend, and Droyan, his wife, not not likely as much of a, a household name, um, I'm guessing, but I actually think about her probably more than I think about uh, Carl Sagan. 
If you're unfamiliar with the Voyager project, I'm going to recommend this Radio Lab episode. Uh, the title Space. I think this particular interview with Andrian has also been clipped into some other Radio Lab episodes. I think one about love. Um, but the space one I know has the full interview. I get chills just thinking about this. Andrian talks about exactly what was put on the golden record. She was the creative director of NASA's Voyager Interstellar Message Project. So to hear me discuss what's on the golden record, it would be doing you, the listener, a disservice. You should listen to Andrian talk about this trust that she was given by NASA uh, for making this decision and also this love story that she shared with Carl Sagan and how they met and fell in love. Oh my God, it's it's honestly one of Radio Lab's best episodes. So I'm going to link to that in the show notes for sure. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you heard this? About the golden record? Well, specifically, have you heard Andrean telling her story about Voyager 1? Um, I'm sure I've heard the Radiolab episode. I can't pull it off the top of my head. But I, I have, you know, I've seen a lot about what's on the record and about, you know, like the, uh, aren't there like, isn't there like hello and yes. 6,000 languages and uh, there's like a... I don't think uh, it's that many, but yeah, hello in different languages. There's whales, you know, the sounds of the whale. There's a kid laughing. Um, there's a... Well, I don't want to spoil it, but one of them is a heartbeat, I think. Uh, one of them is Andrian's EKG. They hooked up, uh, hooked her up to like a brain monitor, basically, and... Uh, created an audio version of her brain waves while she meditated on her love for Carl Sagan. Oh, wow. Dude, it's some fucking good shit. Oh, my God. I love it. Um, anyway, so definitely check that out. It's it's a really fascinating project. But back to my content, Andrian, Carl Sagan, these are the minds that birthed this book, uh, Contact. And then, of course, uh, they also assisted with the movie. They were producers. They... Uh, basically wrote the story for it. You could say this qualifies as hard science then like very steeped in scientific fact. Yes, exactly. So despite the cheese, I mean, there's definitely nineties cheese, which is going to be sl- got a Busey in it. <laughs> it's, it. It definitely has a Busey. It's, it's although I argue he's jeans. one of the best parts of starship troopers. He's one of the, he's great in contact. Yeah, he's, he's awesome. Scary. He's scary in contact. Um, so what they were really going for was scientific accuracy. I mean, this is this is not just a rare thing for 90s movies. This is a rare thing for movies today. I mean, anything in the world of entertainment being scientifically correct. Good luck with yeah, that. Yeah, 90s was like the Independence Day era. You know, oh, it, yeah. it was just like Twisted. the <laughs> crazy sci-fi era, you know, and I'm not sure when Armageddon came out, but it was, that was I also, think was uh, I think that was as far as scientific accuracy go, that, that was probably uh second in line after contact, right? <laughs> well, it's funny that you organically brought this up because I Googled a list of the most scientifically accurate movies. Oh, perfect. <laughs> you typically see 2001, a space odyssey at or near the top. Um, you also see the Martian with Matt Damon and his shit potatoes near the top. Oh yeah. Interstellar 
Uh, it was on the list that I'm going to link to in the show notes as well. They definitely worked hard to try to depict some uh, black hole stuff, some wormhole stuff as accurately as possible. They consulted physicists and scientists uh, and contact. That, contact makes the I, list. I think that a black hole in interstellar was, it, it wasn't like the result of artists creating the look. It was, I, th I think they like ran some sort of physics engine and that was what it spit out. You know, it's like with the accretion disc and then the, the, just the, the shape that looks like, you know, like a curved beam of light. Because that was something I've never, you know, that's not what pops in my head when I think of black hole. But apparently that was, you know, based on known science, extremely accurate. Definitely. And a uh, little known fact, if you stare at the black hole image from Interstellar for long enough, you will get cast in a Christopher Nolan film. <laughs> this does not seem like a fact. <laughs> it's one of those facts that I made up on the spot. <laughs> so. Stick with contentology, buddy. Okay. Um, uh, speaking of facts, another great YouTube channel um, called Factor Fictional with Veronica Belmont. They have a great video about contact um, that kind of, you know, her channel is all about looking at movies and trying to figure out if it's fact or fictional. Oh, um, cool. Now, don't watch this YouTube uh, video. If you have not seen contact, it does spoil the ending of contact. It's a kind of, it's a badass ending. Um, of course it's, you can't really spoil a 24 year old movie, but Josh, since you haven't seen contact or maybe only seen it once and don't remember it, don't watch this YouTube video until you watch contact. You got it. This does sound like a, a YouTube channel though, that I want to subscribe to. Cause that's a really cool concept. It, it's I'm, I'm going to have to check out more of the videos. It seemed really cool. And she seems like a great host. So Carl Sagan, unfortunately, he died during the production of Contact. But I think the reason it was so scientifically accurate is that Carl Sagan was heavily involved and apparently took great care to ensure that science was depicted accurately in the film. It was a bit of a mission of his. Now, what is this movie about? Uh, just in case you don't remember this gem of a space film they and it's funny you mentioned the uh the solar system too because it's like the classic opening scene of contact like i don't know man this is just one of those movies that sucked me in as a kid but they pan out of the solar system right they kind of start from earth and then they you know you kind of zoom by the planets like you're on uh you know Google Maps on steroids, you go outside the Milky Way, you're kind of like falling into the depths awesome. of the universe. And then you see you're, you're actually in Jodie Foster, char her character as a little girl, you're actually in her eye, you know, <laughs> like it's, it's a great shot. I mean, it's great effects for the 90s. The galaxy is on Orion's belt. <laughs> Orion's I had no idea belt. I was going to be presenting a primer for everyone <laughs> on, uh, on solar system science that was going to warm up for this content so well lubing them up yeah <laughs> for some sweet sweet space <laughs> Ooh. um so you the, this movie at the beginning you're following the story of this little girl she's clinging to her ham radio through these multiple horrible tragedies uh you learn pretty quick she's lost her mom not long after that 
uh, during this emotional but really well-filmed single-shot scene that's like this camera backing up rapidly up the stairs and then ends with like the the kind of point of view comes out of the mirror. And I don't know, I was watching this on, uh, I rented it on Prime Video and I was watching the little X-ray commentary on the side and it seems like it was a pretty cutting edge cinematography uh, shot for the, the time period. When you see it, you're just like, whoa, what the heck? That was really weird and trippy, but it's, it's a, uh, a pretty striking effect. But in, in this scene, her dad dies, you know, a quick, horrible death as well, right in front of her. She's super young. So now this girl has two dead parents already in the bag, uh, horribly scarred. <laughs> and this, this superhero origin story really takes hold when a priest at her dad's funeral wake tells her that it was all God's will. Uh, of course she instead of becoming batman she becomes like <laughs> atheist science woman <laughs> she's it's got not a bad superpower honestly science woman Hell that's no, probably that's more awesome. applicable than being a batman <laughs> that's every everything about batman is ridiculous except for everything about batman yeah, one of those jobs, you have to start as a billionaire and spend your own money on it. And the other one, you up. might make some money and actually change the world. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, that is a that is a good point. One of them incorporates uh, sharks, shark repellent, and the other one is Batman. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is more to atheism than I thought. <laughs> um, so she has this this like chip on her shoulder she has this i think this hatred of god's will uh combined with the power of trauma go trauma uh she grows up to volatile mix (laughs) she grows up to be this passionate fierce difficult and dare i say it josh a sexy nerdy jody foster that is uh very daring of you (laughs) but i will back you up (laughs) I appreciate it. Really felt like I was going out on a limb. Wow. That was quite the stance for you to take, Brett. (laughs) Uh, Hot takes. So now the sexy grown-up Jodie Foster, we start following her adult life at the Arecibo Observatory, which is a real radio telescope in Puerto Rico and not just a recycled prop from the 1995 James Bond movie, Goldeneye. Yes, and it just collapsed. I was going to talk about that. So you might have seen that in the news. Spoiler. I was on December 1st, 2020, 900 tons. It was a platform suspended above the telescope's 305 meter wide dish. Apparently it had a snapped cable from uh, a month or two earlier. So they knew it was probably coming down. The um, it, it finally did. Everything came apart. The U.S. National Science Foundation announced that it was just going to shut it down permanently over concerns of instability and damage too extensive to repair. Now, have you seen the footage, Josh, of this thing crashing in on itself? Uh, I've seen pictures, and what I was mainly looking for in the photo was to see if there was a little Alec Trevelyan uh from Goldeneye laying down there when the <laughs> when the antenna collapsed and I was not able to locate him. The, the, my favorite line from that movie is Pierce Brosnan just saying, 
she always did like a good squeeze. <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> oh, wow. You know what the I'm talking about? The one-liners. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I just love those Bond movies. Um, Classics. So it is pretty heartbreaking for a couple of space buffs like us, but... That is a significant <sighs> loss. It's It's also... This is another hot take. It's kind of rad to watch. It's it's kind of wild. So I am going to link to the show notes. There's a lot of links in this episode. A lot of good stuff that I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, I've got like eight space links. It's going to be... <laughs> our, our show notes are going to be like three times longer than they normally are. 10,000 pages of information. Um, you got to watch this thing. I mean, so the first view of it, it looks like a video game cutscene. Uh, they were recording like multiple angles. They knew this thing was coming down. The second video oh, man. is just these like, it's the the scene is on these cables. I say scene like it's a film, like this, it's not a, it's a real event that was filmed, <laughs> but. I'm sure they took time to frame it up <laughs> they, dramatically too, if they knew it was coming down. Well, the second, the second view of this is zoomed in on the cables as they just like, explode with like concrete pieces oh, flying man. and then the it like the the automated like security camera zooms out and pans and you just watch this thing collapse it it's very heartbreaking but it's also a little bit awesome I, I, so they did not pull a filming a ufo or bigfoot on this where the using the shaky camera like oh this is the most important thing i've ever seen i can't hold my camera steady they actually took the time to frame this up properly yes jj abrams was not responsible for the arecibo <laughs> filming collapse <laughs> nice well he's no got enough on his flare. plate so um back to the our uh, our sexy uh, nerdy fierce scientific Atheist. protagonist so she, um, she's working her way up, uh, at, you know, in, in life as a scientist. She ends up at the Arecibo. Her, her responsibility at this point, she's tracking signals from space. I shouldn't say responsibility. Like, this is her choice. Like, this is her path that she's chosen. So she's, you know, just scanning the skies and marking them off of a list and uh, she's definitely making a couple other scientists roll their eyes because she's decided to focus her entire life's work as a scientist on the possibility of extraterrestrial life. And everybody thinks she's crazy. And not only that, she is honed in with laser-like focus. Now, one of the scenes in the movie that makes me really roll my eyes is during one of these mo uh, moments when she's starting her research at the Arecibo at one point she sticks a pin on a little star map about yay big uh, that looks like something our friend Derek might might have designed and uh, sold on bestmapsever.com if you ever branched out into the cosmos <laughs> but she you know it's this, it's this little map and she sticks a pin in it and she says one down a couple billion to go <laughs> <laughs> it's just like what Joe Rogan would call a cut the shit moment. It's uh, I'm if you're keeping track of which areas of the universe uh, that you've monitored this, you know, you're using this extremely expensive device you've released with 
probably like government grants that our tax pays for, and you're putting a little push pin on a map? I don't know, man. Uh, that part's a little ridiculous. Not the most efficient method, but that's atheism for you. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess, you know, I tried to think of this as maybe like if we use one of Derek's best maps ever maps f- for peak bagging, you know, Colorado 14ers, you're not using the map for navigation. You're using a different map to navigate up a mountain or to navigate to the mountains. And then this one is just to like put on your wall and say, hey, bro, look, I climbed this peak. I climbed this peak. Um, so from from that, I don't know. It's just the way that she says. It's just a <laughs> a visually dramatic way to track and log her progress. Yeah, exactly. It's the only cringeable part in the movie, in my opinion, that line delivery. But back to the aliens and her looking for him. Uh, what fictional organization did the writers affiliate this character with? Was it some crazy institute that's dedicated to the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, but given some, I don't know, realistic name so it makes it more believable? Like SETI or Scientology? <laughs> so actually, true to scientific accuracy, uh, SETI, that's a real thing, and that's... That's the that's the thing in the movie. It's nice. it's like this Dr. Seti. <laughs> Dr. Seti. Probably a real doctor too. So, uh when I was a kid, my first computer actually I downloaded Seti at home on it as a screensaver. Are you familiar with this? Did you do no. any Seti stuff? No. Just uh just reading stories, looking through telescopes, just hoping I never really uh, got involved in any uh, any organizations. So, uh, and this is, I'm not talking about the movie now. This is 100% real. The Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, the SETI Institute. Oh, yeah, uh, definitely a real thing. Yeah, they. this was a scientific experiment based in UC Berkeley when they connected people into this network with SETI at home. They used internet-connected computers in their search for extraterrestrial intelligence. So, oh, so you, the program you downloaded was yeah. contributing brain power, basically. Processing power. Yeah. Exactly. So Interesting. they would collect data and then it was almost like, it was almost like a decentralized currency or like, you know, you're lending your processing power. I mean, that's what Bitcoin is when, you know, you mine for Bitcoin, you're lending. Have they tried to involve you in any Nigerian print schemes <laughs> or anything since they had access to your system? Uh have you gotten Have you gotten to any flight of the Concords? I'm guessing not. But there's a great. <laughs> not. I haven't a, gotten to that one yet. There's a great Nigerian uh, scammer that that actually shows up, and uh, Prince Prince Nabatu is very grateful <laughs> for your investment. It has seen great returns. He's like a real guy, and like oh man, the two guys so it's not are a shocked scam. that it's not a scam. It's real. I've been missing out. I could have been investing. <laughs> Seti's real. The Nigerian prince is real. It's all going to work And atheism out. is real. <laughs> so in this movie now, back to the movie. I know we're jumping around a lot, but yeah, Seti's real. And a couple other like little moments in this movie that really ground it. Even when you're a little kid like me watching this movie for the first time. These little clips. Bill Clinton giving a speech that like, works they used real speeches 
from Bill Clinton. This actually did cause some controversy that you can read up about on the contact uh, Wikipedia page. But Bill Clinton, given these, you know, contextually appropriate speeches. They cut it up or it's like uh, unedited. Oh, so that, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very clever. There's long enough. I think the actual thing in real life was a asteroid that they thought might have been from Mars that landed in Antarctica and Bill Clinton was talking about it at a press conference. So like they didn't cut it up much. And then another scene is like a profile view of the side of his head. And um, that was a speech about Castro or something like that. And they muted it, but it made it look like, you know, you had the other characters in the movie next to Bill Clinton. Anyway, super cool. They do like they got Larry King interviews on there. They got Jay Leno jokes. They got CNN stuff, which also caused controversy. But all these little moments in the film made everything feel more believable than any of the like scientific jargon that I have no doubt was accurate because of Sagan's insistence on accuracy. Yeah, that's really awesome. It's yeah, that's a, that's cool to, to put like historical news footage into a film like that. Like I can imagine how that would definitely make it feel like you're almost like watching a documentary. I love it. And actually the book contact, like I said, I haven't read it, but the president you know, it was a fictionalized, I think it was Linda Harper uh, was the character in the book that was the president. And um, they did have somebody cast for the movie, but I, they decided to go in this different direction. I think it was a great direction because it's like, I don't know, it really sets up this like realistic feeling that matches the scientific accuracy that they're going for. And they do that because they happen to find this Bill Clinton speech that just worked so well? I don't know. The I'm guessing that they... I'd imagine the availability would have to play a part in it because that's not something you could plan for, but if you found that, you know, it's like, it's definitely like some clever writing to, yeah. to work that in. Plus, you probably save a shitload on casting. Just let the president be in your movie. Well, they... So actually, what this isn't in my outline. I was not going to talk about this, but uh, since we're still on this subject... It is kind of interesting. The after the movie was released, the White House uh, sent the production company. I think even Robert Zemeckis, like personally, they they received a letter saying that it was inappropriate to use Bill Clinton's <laughs> speech. This is I'm serious about this. Oh it's man, really, it's really interesting. And he kind of the response was, "Hey, we sent you the script. We sent you you know a preview of this to okay it." And, you know, they didn't get a fine or anything like that. But I guess there's some rule that says you can't use, um, you know, real footage of the president out of context. And there was also, you know, CNN on the on like a very similar strain of thought. CNN lent all this like real kind of footage and, and like real journalists to talk about fake things for the movie. How interesting. Fictional things. I bet that has been in no way reappropriated into the YouTube era. <laughs> People trying to like do some crazy conspiracy theory videos or something. Well, that was, I mean, that's part of the problem was like, oh, these journalists are acting now, you know, in the nineties, it's pretty it's all right. They're all acting now anyways. Oh my gosh. See, here we go. This is the problem. <laughs> In the 90s, it's like people believe news and there's a clear delineation between fiction 
and nonfiction. And now we live in an era where, you know, everything is blurred and nothing makes sense. Well, the problem is that everything is so biased these days and the news just spends most of their time attacking the other side of the news. I mean, it's no, it's no wonder that you like feel like you can't trust anything you see on the news these days because it's just, I don't know. It's just, it almost feels like fiction the way that it's approached. Well, you've all know Harari will talk about this in the book you're about to read that I gifted you, but I will, I will say, I don't think all news sources are, uh, created equal. I think if you want good news, you have to pay for it because if you're not paying some sort of subscription, you're paying a different way. You are paying with giving your attention and then them taking that attention and selling it to advertisers. So whether it's Fox News or it's CNN or it's Newsmax or it's Facebook or it's YouTube, you really have to think about, um, you know, you might not be paying with money, but you're paying somehow. And so my recommendation is- You're paying with your attention. Exactly. And you're paying by supporting their platform and you're paying- by being advertised to. Exactly. So I, you know, I took his advice. I am a uh, paid news subscriber. I pay like $4 a month or whatever. And it's, I, in my opinion, it's a small price to pay for something that's probably still uh, not perfect. I'm sure it's imperfect. Of course, there's going to be human error and bias, but it's going to be better than the two major networks that are doing exactly what you described. And basically like with those networks, they are since they're directly competing and they're also advertising to their specific audience, you know, it's you know, they are they're basically biasing everything to skew in the direction to keep the people that they already have on the hook keep their eyes on the screen. Yeah. And so they're not, there's no real like independent journalism. There's no, there's no like sense of wanting to chase down the facts specifically. It's just, it's the echo chamber. And I could, t- I could definitely see a paid news service being better for that. Right. But I have not run across one that, uh, that I fully trust yet. And you probably never will. Probably not. Because that's why I stick to content. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. So let's get back to the content contact. So um, Dr. Arroway, uh, that's Jodie Foster's character, um, Ellie Arroway. She meets the hunkiest of hunks. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> oh, they're going to say Miss <laughs> Trans Neptunian Object. <laughs> She is one sexy lady man lady. That's another good flight of the Concord. Check lady out the accretion lady. disc on her. <laughs> Don't you make me take off my Kuiper belt. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. No, that's actually that's pretty good. I thought you were gonna go with something like comet pasties, but that was pretty good. <laughs> comet pasties. <laughs> actually fit the theme I perfectly. Like that. So um uh, where was I? Matthew, Matthew McConaughey, McConaughey. Hunkiest of hunks. That's right. So we get some seriously sexual sciencing as well as some good Ooh. 90s cheese. Uh, so then some 
This and we're back at Arecibo, by the way. So some asshole scientist who hates bumpy jeep rides, but he loves cigar chomping and he loves science that can be profitable. He pulls the plug on this whole operation of looking for aliens. He, uh, I mean, it just throws a wrench in the whole plans. And uh, Ellie is forced to go beg for money to get the funding to continue uh, to search for whoever's sending these white Tic Tacs over to Earth that keep fucking with our Navy pilots. That's a little, that's not in the movie, but I ad-lib that. <laughs> that's a little uh, real-world crossover. <laughs> that's right. That's what this film is all about. So fortunately, this Robert Bigelow-esque billionaire with a fascination for space, just like we have, but without uh, with all the money, so not, not the funding, not the same thing. Um, he's into all this weird experimental stuff and weird investments, and so he steps in and saves her operation uh, after this killer monologue where um, Dr. Arroway just goes off on these squares and suits about how, uh, you know, they basically, it's one of my favorite scenes, actually. So basically, after asking for funding, and she's obviously at the end of her rope, these these three people are just kind of smug, and they say, this doesn't sound like science. This sounds like science fiction. And she's totally triggered, and she says, you know, oh, the people that built the airplane, that probably sounded like science fiction. The people that br- broke the sound barrier, the people that went to the moon, that all sounded like science fiction to somebody. You know, this could be the greatest discovery of humankind. It's an awesome scene. Like, it's Jodie Foster at her best. And I got a little bit of movie trivia for you. All right. She is wearing this uh, beige turtleneck suit. It is actually... Uh, a suit style that Carl Sagan is known for. So if you're a fan of Carl Sagan, watch that in contact. Cause I always missed that uh, as a kid, but on a rewatching of it, it's, it's pretty obvious. Like it's, it's kind of a cool, uh, homage. You think that was at his uh, wife's insistence. That seems like something that she might've put in there. It's very possible. I don't know who was the decision maker for that, but uh, pretty badass. So she gets she gets her money. She ends up at the VLA once again. Another real thing. It's the very large array in Sakura, New Mexico. Um, and not long after that, a strange signal is coincidentally picked up, and history has changed forever. Dot dot dot. That's all I'm going to talk about the movie. I don't want to summarize the plot anymore. I just want to warm up your jet engines, and I want to get you to go watch this movie because it's a real gem. Mm. But I do have a couple more things to talk about. <laughs> awesome. I'm, I'm ready for anything down the science hole. So um, I do want to touch on some of the themes that I think are really interesting. I, I, I had a little trouble putting this into, the word, into words, but I feel like there's this. Uh, I mean, it's not it's very obvious but it's very well done and very nuanced at the same time. So I feel like there's this tug of war with a theme in this movie that, uh, that Zemeckis pulled off. It's represented between several of the characters, but it's most easily represented, it, uh, represented by Matthew McConaughey's character. He's, he's a priest, you find out, but he's not 
officially a priest because wink wink he just couldn't deal with the whole celibacy thing oh with those abs who could <laughs> he liked making the love too much to be he's a got the, the boom cloth. boom boom he's got the boom 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 for sure um <clears throat> so you got mcconaughey hunkiest of hunks you've got Foster's character, the godless atheist who just loves staring at the heavens but loves science. Now, they're like, it's science versus religion, but they also Interesting. like connect. Now, there's another example of this tug of war that I uh, I just finished watching this movie um, in preparation for this episode, and this is this came to me just this evening as another tug of war between two characters that represent similar things, but both tainted. So there's this character that Rob Lowe plays. He's like this slimy right-wing politician. With Um, great hair. Oh my God, Rob Lowe. He's the hunkiest of hunks. (laughs) (laughs) If I, yeah, (laughs) I don't know where I was going with that. I can imagine. (laughs) I'm going to get a shirt that says I'm gay for Rob Lowe. Something like that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure he would appreciate that. He might actually sell that on his merch store. He probably gets that a lot. He's just such a handsome guy. Oh my God. So hot. Rob Lowe. So hot right now. So hot. So he's, and it's interesting in this, in this, he's the Matthew McConaughey's abs of people. (laughs) That's ridiculous. Um, so he's it's he's like this conservative um i don't know i think he's like a political advisor or talking head or something like that but he and he he talks about god and he definitely represents the religion side of this tug of war but he's only using god and religion as like a prop to further some like political agenda very much like when sounds tr- very familiar <laughs> yeah trump holding up the Bible in front of the church. <laughs> oh, man. Guess these protesters. <laughs> Get them. So on the other side of the tug of war, uh, it's Dr. Drumlin. I mentioned him before. He's this, you know, big cigar, fancy, rich scientist that, you know, he's he is a scientist. You can see he's curious. You can see uh, he likes, you know, educating people. He knows his stuff. But he's in the science for profit. He's in it for recognition, for fame. He's always trying to get credit for all of Dr. Arroway's, Jodie Foster's character's discoveries. So the Matthew McConaughey and the Jodie Foster are like the, you know, the like, they both want truth. They both want answers. They're both like, you know, beautiful and like successful. the light side. But they're science versus religion. And then you have the other two characters that are like the same kind of parallel, but they're both like shitty versions of it. They're both tainted. Oh, man. So it's a really interesting take to be setting up the religious side as the bad guys. That's a. Well, seems like a really bold stance for the 90s. Well, there's definitely bad. I mean, that was. Those were the two kind of opposite side of that tug of war. But if you watch this film, 
there is an this it's the Jake Busey character. He is the anti-science cult leader. I mean, they, he gets portrayed as like religion totally gone off the deep end, come around the other side and is evil at this point, causing violence. He's not just, you know, uh, using God as a conservative symbol. He's using it as like a, um, a reason for, you know, homicide. Religion, the root of all evil. Or the root of all faith. So I'm going to go with my take on it. <laughs> okay. That's your uh, prerogative. So <clears throat> this, this tug of war, this argument between science and faith or religion, it's, it, it, it kind of comes, and I think Zemeckis pulled this off. It's kind of comes to this moment where they can coexist, just like McConaughey and Foster. Like you can have faith, you can have reason, and just like McConaughey and Foster, you can have sweet, sweet reconciliation between those. Get your religion right (laughs) up inside that science hole. It's a beautiful thing, man. I I like it. I, I like it. It's like there's this interplay but then they both can hold hands and come together at the end. And it's a little cheesy, but I like it. You like a little bit of cheese? I like a little bit of cheese. And like I said, this movie has it all. It's got it's got the cheese. It's got uh, Jake Busey, the scariest creature from Starship Troopers. <laughs> it's got those boom, boom, boom abs. Rob Lowe's hair. It's, it's got everything. <laughs> so now that I've kind of wrapped up my, uh, my content piece. I do want to take a little bit of time to talk about why I was inspired to cover contact. I'd love to hear that. <sighs> so this, I was honestly thinking about doing this movie before I came out to North Carolina to start seven thirty seven school. But after this last week, man, I had to do this. Our ground instructor for initial new hire class and he's also going to be teaching 737 systems in our next uh upcoming week here Uh, he's a gentleman by the name of mike lucas now mike is a retired american airlines captain who uh now teaches ground school only for this company that i will soon be flying planes for in his 50 plus years of aviation he's logged over twenty six thousand hours flying Uh, Now, the particular reason that he inspired the contact uh, coverage on our show is that Mike has been a longtime public speaker representing NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. All right. Nice. Dude, he is awesome, and he's the real deal. Before class or during breaks, he has been showing us pictures of him at the launch pad with space shuttles behind him, which oh almost, my God. almost never happens to go to the launch pad with a vehicle on it. He has pictures of him with astronauts, Apollo astronauts. He's got s- stuff signed. He has a card that was sent to him, signed by like six astronauts, and congratulating him on his engagement with his wife, Sweet. which happened at a NASA event with those astronauts present. Uh, He's told us stories about meeting Jim Lovell, Buzz Aldrin, countless astronauts that have commanded the space shuttle or flown on Apollo missions. My God. He has talked. Legends. (laughs) 
<laughs> he has talked to astronauts that have walked on the moon firsthand and heard firsthand stories about how to walk on the moon properly. So nice. I got a couple stories for you. That's cool, man. So one of the stories comes from an astronaut by the name of Charlie Duke. Uh, he piloted the lunar landing module during Apollo 16. Apparently they were horsing around. And when seeing how high he could jump, which was about four feet high with the reduced gravity. Now this is despite the bulky spacesuit that they're wearing. He jumped up, but he didn't properly calculate his center of mass uh, with his body very well. So when he landed, he landed on his feet, but he, he was just leaning back too far. And Charlie Duke told this story to, to Mike and said he thought he was going to die. He fell straight down on his back, which within this, oh, dude. <laughs> within this fiberglass shell contains all of this delicate, delicate equipment and life support systems that is keeping him alive, obviously, on the moon. Yeah. Don't want to get any punctures, <laughs> any kinks or anything. You thought he was dumb for it, man. Wow. Um, so I obviously didn't hear this story firsthand from an astronaut like Mike did, but I did find a good write-up of the incident online. So just another link in the show notes. Oh, awesome. <clears throat> now, Mike clearly prioritized his life properly, and he's collected these memories and these moments with these incredible humans. But he does have a couple of physical treasures, <laughs> Uh, Mike's most prized possession, and he showed us a picture of this. It's called a beta cloth. It's a white piece of cloth. It's apparently a special fiberglass fireproof material. Now, in the middle, it had the Apollo 14 patch on it. It was this piece of cloth was signed by astronaut Ed Mitchell, and it had been taken to the moon. And now Whoa. Mike... Mike oh is the God. owner of this thing. So that is, there are probably not a whole lot of souvenirs that have been to the moon. Definitely not. That's incredible. It's like a priceless artifact for sure. And I mean, for somebody like, you know, you couldn't buy it from Mike for a million dollars. Like, of course, he, that's priceless. Absolutely. I got another. So him being uh -huh. your instructor, it like got you into like a space mindset. Well, I've, I've, I mean, you know, I've loved this subject matter for as long yeah, as I could remember. Probably 90% of what we ever talk about together. And you can tell he loves talking about it. And so I'm definitely like, I, f I kind of feel bad because we are supposed to be learning a lot of stuff. This is like a condensed 737 course, but I'm like, uh, Hey Mike, if you want to tell us more <laughs> space stories, I'm all ears, buddy. And Got any more anecdotes for us. And uh, I would come to class and I'd show him my, NASA socks and I'm like <clears throat> I'm like Mike just so you don't think I'm uh, humoring you to try to get an A in your class <laughs> I actually am interested in this stuff I love space stuff so please keep the stories coming so I got I got at least one more and then we'll see if we have time for another but <clears throat> this is another great space uh, trivia fact that I'd never heard of before so the Curiosity rover that's on Mars right now, it has metal wheels. Engineers that designed this thing, that built the wheels, they wanted to add some kind of like convex insignia onto the metal wheels 
spinners? No, not exactly. <laughs> Where the tread goes, they wanted to add... Oh, so they leave like a stamp on the surface as it drives? Exactly. That's what they wanted to do, was to have JPL for Jet Propulsion Laboratories. They wanted it to be imprinted wherever this curiosity... What a bunch of assholes. I love it. I'm into it, man. <laughs> Yeah, I like it too. <laughs> gotta, dude, branding is hard in today's climate. You gotta... <laughs> gotta sign that planet. <laughs> so... Apparently, they couldn't do this. The higher-ups was like, no, this is in bad taste. Whatever the reason was, they said no. Well, as Mike put it, engineers do not like being told they cannot do something. So they did it anyway, but discreetly. Nice. There are holes in the wheels that are designed to, quote-unquote, improve traction. But these, these seemingly random holes... And they're large, like they're not tiny. They're as you know, they're big, like big holes in the. Is tread. it Braille? It's it's Morse code. It's oh out, yes, it spells out Morse code, uh, JPL in Morse code in the sand of the Martian surface. That is awesome. Another article for you to check out. And actually, I do have one more story. Do you think we have time for it? Do it up. All right, let's do it. So this is this one's actually relevant to the movie, which is interesting because he brought this up before I rewatched Contact. So this there's this scene uh, in Contact where NASA scientists give Dr. Arroway the cyanide pill. Now I guess the scene caused some controversy during production when the film came out. The film's NASA advisor Gerald Griffin insisted that NASA has never given any astronaut a cyanide pill just in case. They use arsenic. <laughs> well, apparently the NASA says no suicide pill. Uh, and that if a, you know, if an astronaut just wanted to commit suicide in space, they just cut off their oxygen supply. It's not that hard. Right. It's, our, it's dangerous enough. Now, Carl Sagan insisted that NASA did indeed give out cyanide pills. They did it for every mission that any astronaut has ever flown. Wow. So Zemeckis... He said that because of the two radically different assertions, the truth is unknown, but he left the suicide pill scene in the movie as it seemed just more suspenseful. And it's also in line with Sagan's beliefs and vision in the film. Uh, Now, Mike actually brought this up in class. He said, and this is a guy that like, he has rubbed shoulders with more astronauts uh, than Wally. Like this is the guy. (laughs) So, he said from his personal knowledge, NASA actually did consider giving astronauts suicide pills, but that it was decided against it because it would change the mentality of the crew by giving them this option. They were totally they were bringing up the the idea that failure could happen. And oh they, my God. they wanted these missions to just be like failure is not an option. Everything is aimed for success. And so Mike, he confirmed the NASA advisor for uh, contact saying that, you know, and another thing he said was that Mike said, you know, if you wanted to end things quickly in space, if something went wrong, you just open the door. Like one of the astronauts told him that. You have to (laughs) actively try to stay alive in space, it seems. (laughs) Exactly. So there you have it. Uh, if you're ever wow. if you're ever staring out into space, Josh, and you're wondering if there's anything out there besides noble gases and carbon compounds, if you're worried that all this space is wasted, 
because we are all alone on this pale blue dot. Just look around, buddy. Find a guy like Mike and watch a movie <laughs> like Contact because it's people like Mike and it's movies like Contact that keep the faith alive right next to the curiosity and the logic that push science forward. So go ahead and tune your radios to 4.4623 gigahertz, the magic frequency that's based on the hydrogen <laughs> atom spin flip transition because God might be listening and God wants you to watch Contact. Nice. <laughs> wow. You can't get much higher recommendation than God. It's a commandment. <laughs> yeah, it's it's in the Bible, people. Wow, that's incredible, man. Yeah, um, like this is a movie that I've only really seen, you know, one one time, and it was probably, you know, late nineties or early two thousand when I've seen it. So very little of it, little of the film is clear in my mind. But now I've got to expand my content circuit to take this in too. It's so hard to keep track of everything, but yeah, this is definitely like this is everything I love space sci-fi scientists carl sagan you know just hard science in general yeah those those are all the things that you know make some of the content that speaks directly to me so it does seem like it's criminal this one slipped through my fingers and i've only seen it once it's understandable and the good news is this is just a movie it's not an entire book or 15 season series that I'm telling you, you need to watch <laughs> now. <laughs> it's kind of how we've been rolling lately. It's true. Here, uh, here's six months worth of content. Well, thanks Brett. That was amazing. Um, you know, if my mind wasn't already on space, which you know, it was, it's uh, laser focused back in that direction now. So I'll definitely check it out. I will report back and let you know what I think. And uh, thanks everyone for listening uh, we really appreciate you guys tuning into the Content Clearinghouse or the Contact Clearinghouse, if you will. <laughs> oh, uh, you can con- you can contact us. <laughs> yes, <laughs> contact us uh, on social media at the Content Clearinghouse on Instagram or Facebook. You can email us at contentclearinghouse at gmail Drop us a line. Let us know what you think. Thanks so much for listening. We love you guys. 